Welcome back to What's the Big Idea? Today on the show, we have Biet Simkin. So Biet is a musician. She is a coach. She is a meditation facilitator extraordinaire. She just had an incredible book called Don't Just Sit There that came out this year. Uh, And one of my favorite things that she does is something called the Center of the Cyclone, where she leads this modality of breath work infused with meditation and singing and music. And it's like traveling to a psychedelic state, completely sober, and she can take you there in just a few minutes. And so she has this special brand of magic. And, you know, one of the things that was fun about this conversation is that a lot of her work kind of exists in the world of spirituality and talking about souls and talking about the nature of reality and the self. And so we got to chat candidly about, you know, how do we articulate some of these things to people who aren't tapped into the woo-woo or the spirituality and have a really candid conversation. But, you know, why I think this episode is so great is because Biet is just, without a doubt, one of the best storytellers I know. And you're going to hear stories about growing up with this incredible father that kids thought were Santa Claus to the tragedy of losing a child hers when she was, you know, in her twenties and how she talks about this stuff with such a lightness. That's so incredible because, you know, ultimately she really has developed a practice that allows us to transmute sadness and pain and proceed flaws into this, this presence, this power. And so I'm very excited for you guys to check it out. Without further ado, Biet Simkin. Welcome back to What's the Big Idea. I am here today with one of my favorite people, Biet Simkin, who is going to drop some knowledge. Um, but before we get into that, you know, I just shared my favorite thing about Biet before we started the podcast. And one of the things I said is that it feels like she is directly engaging the world, but never overwhelmed by it. And she's just always herself. And she's a real student of life who's thought so deeply about it. So, Biet, I'm so excited to have you on the show today. So excited to be here. Thank you so much. So you you do so many things. You, you're going to regale us with so many stories. But I want to know how, when someone asks you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I mean, I say I'm a spiritual teacher. I do epic meditation experiences all over the globe that I score with my own music. I'm an author. It gets longer and longer as I keep going. It's like, and. (laughs) But so say more about these epic meditations because they really are completely otherworldly of like, I've experienced one recently where you literally took me into, I would say like a psychedelic state without psychedelics. And this is in a probably like a four or five minute breathing meditation. So what, what are, when you say epic meditation, like what, what are these experiences that you lead for people and why are why do they matter oh um have you ever seen bill and ted's excellent adventure (laughs) yeah i have did you ever see bill and ted's excellent adventure 2 i don't think that i have yeah no one has but anyway was there a grim reaper i think so i don't even remember but anyway at the end of maybe it was at the end of the original bill and ted anyway because it was so long ago i don't even remember but at the end they're shown these people from the future come back and they're like playing guitar in slow motion but they're i don't even think there is a guitar they're like just 
playing this thing because they like worship Bill and Ted and they whatever play guitars in the future in slow motion and I remember seeing that scene and there was something about the slowness of the way that they were playing guitar and the fact that they were coming from the future that made me think wow the way that we interact with concerts and live experiences is really deformed it's something's wrong with it I went to a lot of concerts growing up and I've enjoyed zero of them basically because you're always standing you're always have some douchebag from Jersey with a Budweiser in his hand next to you there's people it's loud it's you know it's it's insane it's cramped it's like people are like like sardines and they're all trying to get to the front it's just miserable and as a person who's I consider myself to be rather civilized I you know hearken back to the days when there was like opera and people like sat in motherfucking seats you know what I mean so but as someone who's very rock and roll and likes the rock and roll scene I just never ended up being able to experience things that way. So when I started my meditation experiences and scoring them with my own music, it was always about this idea of how can we interact with art in a completely new way? Well, if we mix culture with spiritual experience, then we end up with this amazing, you know, alchemical creation, which is that now people are seated. Now people are indulging in the pleasure of this heightened state. Like you said, I got you into in like four minutes. And then the music comes on and it's like, oh, I actually hear the music. It's hard to hear music when you're like freaked out and there's a Budweiser being crushed on your head, you know? And so, and why, why do those experiences occur for you as like valuable for people, giving them an opportunity to like venture into those different places? Because I think the thing that people don't understand is that um, their life is happening and if they don't make actual effort, conscious effort, the only part of them that will receive the impressions of their life is the going to be their body and mind. And the body and mind actually doesn't create memories. The body and mind doesn't create love. The body and mind doesn't know um, being. Those things all come from a soul level. So if you just go through life and you don't become conscious at all or make the effort to become conscious, you won't remember anything. I mean, if you look back at your life, think about how many things you actually remember. We forget a lot. The reason we forget is because we're not fucking there. Hmm. So this is about how can I create a shock for people? Sometimes I call my events shocked into a state of presence. It's like you need to wake up if you want to actually remember this moment. And so I want to give people a little bit of like a foundational understanding. It's so you obviously just came out with this book. Don't just sit there. And, and so much of your work is around this idea of developing mindfulness practice, spiritual awakening. And so when you talk about things happening on a soul level, can you just provide a little bit of background about what that means to you? But more importantly, I think I'm, I'm interested in like where that came from about how you started interacting with the world on that level so maybe start there and then tell us kind of like what it means to you how'd you get introduced to this world 
Well, I got introduced to it as a baby because my dad was this like weirdo awakened shaman teacher guy. So I was there on this like little fluffy shag rug doing yoga poses with him and doing, you know, lion's breath, you know, where you stick your tongue out. And, ah, you know, and wait, we, wait, do that one more time, please. That's ah. <laughs> better. Thank you. So that one. And, and he, my father was this like super, uh, he wasn't like doing it right. He did it his own way. He was an anarchist, you know, he like ran away from the woods of Russia after curing him after I mean from Leningrad uh, now St. Petersburg ran away um, cured himself from tuberculosis came to the states at the age of 40 and got circumcised without anesthetic just to prove he was a Jew because he felt he had been robbed of his ability or a right to his Judaism but at the same time didn't really believe in Judaism because he went to a temple when he first got here we I mean to say we were poor would be an understatement we were Russian immigrants like we had absolutely nothing and we came, he came to this temple and it was the holy high holiday of like Rosh Hashanah or whatever and he walks in and they're like hey welcome and he's like I am a Jew and they were like cool you know <laughs> and he's like I come from Russia and I've, I get to be I've never been in temple before like you know something like that and he's like, I discovered Torah in woods of Russia and have been circumcised. I am a real Jew. You know, he said, goes this whole fucking thing. And they're like, cool. It's like $15 to come in tonight for the Holy High Holiday of Rosh Hashanah. And he's like, I do not have $15. <laughs> he's like, but I am a Jew. And he was, they were like, cool, like we can't let you in. And he decided in that moment that he never wanted to step into a temple ever again. And that was it. So we never went to temple. We didn't follow any of the traditions. He was like, from this moment forward, to me, what being a Jew means is something completely different. I don't need that tribe. What I need is people who understand what it means to truly connect with the divine, to like, truly connect with the state of love. And this man walked around like a baby. You know, he like waddled. Everyone thought he was Santa Claus. Like little kids would be like, are you Santa? And he would always say yes if kids asked him if he was Santa. Because he had like this big white beard. And he would be like, yes, I am. And he would like buy them candy. Um, he just had this way about him that was really, really special. So he taught me. But really what taught me was my life just became very broken. My mom died when I was almost seven. Very suddenly. And then my entire family died like one by one. Sans my brother and my father. And during that time, the pain that I was infused with, the, the horrible, um, horrible pain and heartache that that caused, um, led me to, you know, to, for me anyway, to experience the meaning of life. Like I was like, oh, well, I don't know why my mom died, but I think it has something to do with me connecting to my soul. And I started to, you know, kind of piece that together and seek for this alternate plane because this plane was a little bit fucked up, you know? And what did you discover? Um, I just, you know, I had a long, it was a long journey. So I, I didn't discover much for a long time. What I discovered was that, you know what it was? I was just willing to go to any lengths to find awakening, like any length. Like I was, I, I would have done anything, but what that meant in my little fucking crazy brain was like I was willing to destroy everything. So I tried heroin, I tried alcohol, I tried cocaine, I tried fucking people. Like I tried a lot of things that uh, weren't, uh, they were really effective in the moment, but the repercussions of them were 
pretty intense and also it wasn't something that you know in Hansel and Gretel like they know how to find their way back at the end like when you take LSD you don't know how to go go back to that state after Mm -hmm. you're off the LSD so I I would go on the LSD and then I'd come off the LSD and I'd be like oh god why like why did you create us to be so limited and blah 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 you know and so how did you start to work back to those states what was the journey to actually create a skill set that facilitated awakening um everyone else died then my my daughter i had a daughter named ula she died of sudden infant death my house burnt down i lived in it for four months while you know doing heroin um my best friend hung himself my father died of a heart attack and um and all the while i was doing a bunch of coke and heroin and Finally, 11 years ago, I got sober. And in getting sober, I realized that um, all that confidence that I had from snorting cocaine was not, it was not something that was, a you know, that I had access to without the coke. So I was just like, how am I going to get along in a world if I don't have, I need the confidence, I need that ease, that, that beautiful, um, you know, sweetness between two people in the middle of the night when you're really connecting and it took a lot of work. It took um, me t- returning to my father's work and making it my own and then doing it every day and re-understanding um, what it meant to, to go to any lengths rather than go to any lengths in destruction. Now I had to go to any lengths in, in co-creation. And when did you, so when you said that you were drawn back to your father's work, what did you get from returning to the work? And what did you evolve? What came out of that that was yours versus what was your dad's? Like, what did you encounter and how did that kind of grow into what it currently is to you? Mm. Everything was mine because he was never like, he. the beautiful thing about him was that he loved me from the start. So there was never like, I never worshipped anyone in my life. Like I never, I was never a fan. I'm still not a fan until this day. Like, I just don't do that. You know what I mean? To me, it's all about celebrating others and being yourself. That There's no fanage in that. He taught me that I, he was like, I am not special. You, I am only here to show you who you truly are. And so, like, I felt like immediately I clicked into being who I am. And then it took years of seeing that who I was was kind of a piece of shit. And seeing all my flaws and getting comfortable with them and learning to have acceptance for my own doubts and my own insecurities and also the fact that I wake up every single day flawed again like it just never ends I keep thinking I'm going to graduate from this there's going to be some finale in which I no longer shit you know and it's like no like it never ends so it's all about transmutation and so that might be a nice segue into I think the big idea that we're going to focus on today which is you use the word transmutation which is beautiful and I'll let you say more about it but so if you were going to think about from this enormous body of work and you know so much time spent thinking deeply about the the idea of awakening um, what is the idea that you wish more people could really take away from this and integrate into their lives Oh, um, you know, yeah, I guess the idea is that I think a lot of us are looking for a solution. We're looking for a fix. 
and we're looking to graduate from all of our pain and from all of our suffering. We want to be able to go to that party and say, I used to be broke, I used to be fat, I used to be alone, I used to be poor, I used to be, you know, no identity of what my true purpose was on this planet. I used to be without community. I used to be without, um, you know, how do you call it when you give alms or charity? I used to be without any purpose in that direction and and I have figured it all out I'm doing all these things we want to be that person we want to be that trajectory and 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 we should be you know and I I believe you and I are and so that's why we go to great parties but that's besides the point the real point is that the best thing you could say at a party would be to truly be exactly where you are in the present moment you know I used to think that because especially as a spiritual teacher, I thought that if I wasn't zenned out at all times or if I had regression into my own you know, shortcomings, that I was going to somehow lose people as an audience. They were going to say, oh, why the fuck should I follow this bitch? Like, she's just as confused as I am. She had a croissant this morning. You know what I mean? <laughs> so what I've learned is as much as it's great to be in integrity and I love you know, showing the world what it looks like to be in integrity. I think it's also important to be present to the the path of attaining integrity. Sometimes we fall off the beam on our journey, and that's also very beautiful. And the fear and the exhaustion and the doubt and the and the pain and the trauma that we've had as children and the, the regression back to that trauma and all of it, is actually so beautiful and that there's no reason to hide it and to pretend like one day we're going to finally be done with that aspect of it. Because in the end, we're going to die. And like, that doesn't sound super fun to me. I mean, as like the aftermath does sound quite lovely, but I mean, the the exact moment of death doesn't sound super fun. And so if you think about this idea of you know, what you now know and what you speak about and what you teach, could you maybe run a parallel of, so you talked about some really significant challenge that challenge feels like an understatement of a lot of the stuff that you've undergone and that you share. So just casually, which I think is one of the beautiful things about you. But if you think about, (laughs) if you think about how you were dealing with challenges then, versus how you interact with challenges and problems and insecurities and everything now. Can you go back to as you're navigating the aftermath of so much of that, of death in the family, death of a daughter, of drug addiction, and then now to today? And like, what is the fundamental difference in how you interact with some of these more challenging aspects of life than to today? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I do is I recognize my resentments inside of things, right? So any story that I'm telling about the thing has to be annihilated pretty much immediately. So if I'm upset about something, my instant go-to is not, okay, well, how am I a victim in this situation? It's instantly like, what did I do and what's my belief and what did I do to even like bring this situation into my, you know, into my environment? Because I brought it in, taking 100% responsibility for that. And then... Could, if, you give, could you give an example to make it more real? Yeah. Um, let's think. So if, you know, 
like if I oh, I can't think of something specifically I'm trying to think can we share like client work and not tell their name yeah well I mean just recently like I got written up in the New York Times right but conveniently the New York Times forgot to mention my name so it was like this you know uh, event series that I had co-created and was the founder of like yeah. co-founder of and um, you know and it, it included bits about what we had created what we built from the ground up and just didn't mention me at all mentioned my co-founder right and left and didn't mention me at all and so I you know, I did what anybody would and I reached out to the New York Times and I also had her reach out and I said like let's try to fix that um, but they were unable to fix it because for whatever reason like you can't go back in time in the New York Times and like fix things like that so that's that and in the past I would have been really destroyed by that because I would have thought like why has God forsaken me like why was I removed like that I why did I lose the notoriety also like I really would like to be written up in the New York Times and like blah 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 and then just you know what used to take longer and would have been like a process of really like resenting them resenting whoever and like being annoyed at all the other people who did get listed and etc cetera, etc cetera, which are some of our friends some some of our friends got listed in that article and I would have done all that it would have been a colossal waste of time so today I just was like the reason that this happened is exactly right there's absolutely no reason to be upset and like everything that's meant to happen is happening exactly as it should and it's all happening in your favor so you don't need to worry about this and just moving right on to the next thing because if I go down the rabbit hole with that particular New York Times thing it's like I'm going to lose a bunch of energy and then I'm going to miss like a bazillion opportunities that are coming in right in that moment. How do you grapple with, I think one of the things that is also a challenge for me is this idea of acceptance versus challenging things as like a means for growth. Like you talked about accepting that, which then gives you capacity to like move forward, right? Yeah. Like you accepted it. You just didn't offer it the headspace to consider it, matriculate over it in your brain. But then I'm also, part of me is like, but what if you had fought it harder and like gone back and you, what's, how do you navigate that balance? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Of like sticking with things because it, you can change things versus acceptance as a means for growth. I think that there's different times for different, you know, different things. If it wasn't an ensemble piece in which I would have been one name in 30, yeah, I would have fought harder, of course. But I just in the end was like, who gives a shit? You know, like it would have felt good to me. It would have been really nice. But at the same time, it's like, that's not what I'm looking to create. Like I'm really looking to tell a very unique story. Well, and also, so you just talked about something that I don't want to skip over, which is this idea of you talked about the belief that like everything's happening exactly as it should. Yeah. Which is an interesting belief to hold because it's kind of, it reminds me of this one time I was in the middle of a fundraise and my friend Brooke, like I was stressed out and it was not going well. And I, I'm talking to Brooke and I'm, <laughs> I'm stressed and she just offers this insight that at the time I was kind of frustrated with, but ended up loving. And she was like, yeah, but you know, it's going to work out. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what, you mean the fundraise? And she was like, no, like everything. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess it will. <laughs> and it was just, again, it was a perspective shift, right. Of like yeah. what was happening in the moment and the perception of it versus like, it's all going to work out. Mm. Like, you know, I'm going to be happy. And I think it, I'm, I'm privileged to be able to have that viewpoint, but I think it's an interesting thing of how you get people to that place mm. where they can accept that perspective shift of like, it's all going to work out. It's all good. You know what I mean? Yeah. It takes them out of the moment. But when you 
have that perspective, at least in my own experience, it can be really liberating in terms of our ability to deal with what's happening in the present moment. Yeah. So how do you, how do you get people to that place though? It's so much more than good. Like good is like not even a good enough word to describe what it actually is. And I think the way that I do that is by speaking about the soul. And for me, my big aha moment was one day, many years ago, probably like eight years ago, I was crying and I was really upset and I was having one of those days that, you know, man, I was in it, you know, like I was just like, it's so hard, whatever I was, I don't remember what I was upset about, but I was upset. And I was with a friend of mine and he was like, you know, like your soul doesn't give a fuck about this. <laughs> and I was just like, my soul doesn't. And he was just like, yeah, like your soul is untouched by this particular problem at this time. <laughs> and so at that moment, what happened in me was a verification, which is what I speak about in the book about verifications are how we find these answers. I can't tell you, like, if you listen to this podcast, you might be like, wow, Biet's so lucky she had this verification where she came to see that her soul or that there is a place inside of her that is uninterested in the problems of her life and doesn't care at all, doesn't go up, doesn't go down, is 100% in a state of bliss at all times. And I have verified that that is true. And that moment was the first point that I verified it. But as the years went on, I verified it again and again and again and again that, yes, lo and behold, that no matter how high I go, no matter how low I go, my soul is always in bliss. And so to me, it's kind of like about experiencing both things simultaneously today. I don't get too excited when good things happen anymore because to me, that's also going to the danger zone. And I also don't get super depressed when bad things happen because it's just not all, it's not all as relevant as my mind may think it is. And so I just reference back to my soul. I, I say to my soul pretty clearly, I say, hey, soul, how do you, what do you think of me not getting written up in the New York Times? And my soul always says the same thing. It's like, ha, 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 no one cares. Like, that doesn't even, <laughs> like, you think that's so important, but like, none of that even matters. And I think that actually this is how people make it to the, you know, these high, high levels of you know, actual contribution in the world is that over time they continue to laugh at these because, hey, welcome. Like if you're going that way, like get ready. Like you're going to get a hit with a bunch of rejection, a bunch of loss, a bunch of bad news. It's part of the fucking deal. And so how do you, you use the word soul and I would project that for a lot of our listeners that they are not connected with that part of themselves mm. or they don't identify with it. And so how do you introduce that concept of, of what that is to someone who might not identify with it personally? Well, I don't, you know, the word soul is like similar in some ways to God or, you know, and that it can be tricky to um, translate. But I'm not speaking about something that's really woo-woo here. Like I'm talking about that your body and your mind are not neutral, they're in duality. They're trapped in duality. Your body and mind are very much um, servants of or in a prison of uh, good and bad, uh, up and down, um, like, dislike, want, don't want, um, yes, no. Those are the things that your body and mind can relate to. If I was to pour like boiling hot water on you, like that's a no, that's a no, 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 right? So it's like in that world, there's only yes and no. And there's only two answers in that world. But the, the thing is, and I think Alex Banayan talks about this in The Third Door, it's like 
the real part of life, which I'm calling the soul, actually doesn't even exist inside the first two options. It doesn't exist in yes, and it doesn't exist in no. It exists in something that begins in neutrality, which is it's an unseen world, it's invisible, and most people don't know how to access it. You know, and I do believe my book does give the keys to accessing that part of yourself. If you don't know what the soul is yet, you can go on a quest to find out what it is, but only you could find out if you have one. What I will say, though, is that your soul, whatever you want to fucking call it, it knows exactly what you're destined to do, destined to do on this planet. It knows exactly who you're meant to marry. It knows exactly what gender you should be, what sex you should be having. It knows exactly how much money you should be making. It knows exactly where you should vacation and it knows exactly where you should live. It knows everything. And you don't know shit. So if you wanna live a life where you're confused for the rest of your life or doing all the wrong things or constantly like hitting walls and confused in your dumbass labyrinth, like great, don't access your soul. But if you wanna live a life where everything is easy and you make shit tons of money and you marry someone and you have great sex and then you, maybe you have like amazing kids and consciousness and enlightenment and you wanna have fancy dinners with people who like inspire you, like. You better fucking meet your soul. You better be ready to or willing to even ask that question of what is my soul and am I willing to take the quest to find out? Well, I want to have dinner with fancy people that inspire me and have great sex and cool kids. So how do I... Because I'm bookmarking our process here. It's like you talked about helping people to connect to this reality that like everything is better than good. But And I'm so intrigued by this point now that I'm kind of in it. So I'm like, if I want that soul connection, where does one start? Um, yeah. And this, again, is spoken about in my book. Right? Yeah, yeah. But I would say that it starts with a thing that I call asking. And um, in traditional form, it's called prayer. I don't believe in prayer because I'm not religious. But I do believe in asking. And I do think that without asking, you actually... Um, won't receive an answer. There's a theory in Judaism which says that um, that the gods or the angels or whatever the fuck is going on around us that we can't see or prove is actually just here to support us and help us, but that they actually can't intervene because the way that the universe was created was uh, to give us, what do they call it? Uh, freedom of will, like, right? Sure. And so they don't want to fuck with our will. Like if our will is to be confused, they're just like, oh, look how cute he's confused, you know? And so, but all we would need to do is just say like, please help me. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. And there's this theory. And again, I often use religious texts to explain my theories, but I'm not religious at all. Um, in the Bible, it says that, that, the, the rich cannot go through into the kingdom of heaven. I don't remember the exact quote, right? But a lot of people think that that means that rich people can't go through to, to heaven, which is such a shitty interpretation and really not the point that the Bible is making at all. Um, the point that the Bible is making is that, um, that the rich cannot go into the kingdom of heaven. They mean rich in spirit. And to be poor in spirit means you can go into the kingdom of heaven. Now, what does that mean, to be poor in spirit? And I consider myself to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means to know at all times that if I do not have access to or if I'm not 100% in a state of humility and knowing that of myself I am nothing, that I am truly empty, that I am truly worthless, that I have nothing to offer this planet, then I am rich 
then I'm like, I'm amazing. I did all that. And then my ego is this like beast. And you, you know, people who've had like number one records or whatever, but then like commit suicide because they don't know how they'll ever follow up to that first record. That's what we're doing. We're setting ourselves up to fail because we didn't write the first record to begin with. So if we don't know how to ask that inner part of ourselves that writes records, say, hey, you know, and this is coming from some of my, you know, like, a, uh, you know, what do you call the Grammy, Grammy award winning recording artists that I'm friends with or that are clients of mine. They say, like, I didn't do this. I didn't write that. You know what I mean? Um, and I feel that way about my music. I feel that way about my book. Like, I feel that way about my relationship. I feel that way about my baby. Like, no way I created all of this. The only thing that I do well is I behold. Like, I step back and I'm like, I don't know what you want to show me, but I'm so fucking interested. Like, I want to know. And so I step back and like a filmer, a filmmaker, I just, I just film what the universe wants to show me. And it's always better than what I would have come up with, you know? Hmm. And so I appreciate you kind of shedding a little more light there. And I want to get you back on course to what we were talking about before of how you navigate these types of challenges and perceived problems. And so you had talked about the step one, right? Which was about the framing. Yeah. yeah. So now if we were to go back, what would be the next step after that? So in terms of we were talking about how you deal with problems back then mm. versus now. So what would step two be? Um, yeah, step two is getting into flow, getting into flow state. So that means that that's a massive list of self-care. Um, I think recognizing that I need to function on all parts of the wheel of creation at all times. I can't be, um, you know, I can't be sitting around on a meditation cushion all day, all night. You know what I mean? That might feel good, but that's not the whole fucking picture. So yes, meditation is clutch. It's absolutely imperative. So if you're listening to this, like definitely learn to meditate. Um, it's, it's an extraordinary thing. And if you read my book, it teaches you how to do it like while you're making eggs. So you could do it anytime. You don't have to like sit on a cushion or anything. But that is, I also add in seated meditation into my practice. At the same time, you know, you need to pursue your, your dreams. So that means spreadsheets, that means cold calls, that means getting weird and learning about, you know, things that you probably didn't want to learn about, like, you know, keeping a schedule or showing up when you said you would or how to make a bunch of money, you know, whatever, you know, whatever it is you're trying to pursue in life. It also means humbling yourself and recognizing, again, that you know nothing and that you're seeking something that is beyond your understanding. And that, I think, admitting to yourself that there's something missing. Because, I don't know, if you're listening to this and you're like, I'm all good. Like, I've got everything. I've got money. I've got my girl. Like, I've got my Porsche. And, and that's good enough for you? Great. Like, I'm not here to tell you, like, keep searching, you know. But if you can honestly say at the end of the night, I'm not quite sure that... I'm not missing something like that. I think there might be something else going on on this planet that is beyond the matrix of shit that I can buy or shit that I can sell or stuff that I can get or lose. And it's something that is completely beyond and it's made out of light and it's like unexplainable. And it's the thing that made Einstein who he was or the thing that makes Oprah who she is. Like, I think there's something going on. If, you're n if you don't get that or if you're not interested, I've got nothing to sell you, you know? I had I had a conversation recently with a girlfriend who was talking about this guy who has a, a job on Wall Street 
and he's a really nice guy that she's interested in romantically. And then she was talking about him. She was like, he's just like, he's just happy where he's at. And she was so discontent <laughs> with that. And I was like, that's the fucking point. What do you got? What do you, and, but it's so funny to hear you talk about this, right? Of like, you're not one to make someone, but if to search for something, if they're happy, but I love what you talked about. It's like, if you just have that inkling that there is something more in the world or like of the self to give that you kind of want to give people permission to dive in on that. But then if they're truly there, Alex Benayan said it well too, when he talked about this idea of like pursuing our dreams and our passions. And he's like, I'm not here to push this on everyone. This isn't like the Holy grail of actualization and and happiness. It's if you have this drive inside of you, which I think is really powerful. Mm -hmm. And how do you, how do you navigate that with your work where it's like when you introduce some of these concepts that are not, adopted by the entire world whether that's mindfulness whether that's like we talk about like soul work and some of these things how do you navigate like spreading a message now where you're on a national stage and talking to people who've never experienced these things before one of the things that i love about you is that you're so unabashedly yourself like wherever you go how do you do that how do you introduce topics that may be classified by woo woo if you're in midwest and speaking to an audience that's never experienced before how do you just continue to speak your truth when you're playing in these territories that may be new for people. I mean, the truth is, is that I'm dialing in to speak and I pray before I speak or I ask, as I would call it, to, to shut down that, that something may speak through me. So usually the things that come out of my mouth are, um, are crisp and clean. They're not like filled with a bunch of stuff that can turn people off. It's just like a clean line, almost like a note in a musical scale. It's not filled with too many ideas. I'm presenting something that has a sound and a frequency to it that people can hear because they're, people are frequency animals. We're listening on a totally different level that if they're listening to me with their mind, they're not going to hear what I have to say. But luckily, not everyone is just listening with their mind. Everyone has other faculties. And sometimes I think because of who I am, I actually um, disarm people and make them feel like, wow, I wasn't planning on listening with my heart or my liver or my spleen today, but she did something to me and I heard something I'd never heard before. And I have reports where I've guided meditations with thousands of people at festivals, people who have like war paint on and are hungover. I've done it (laughs) all over the globe. And people come in thinking they're going to, they're going to hate me. They're, they're thinking they're going to prove that there's nothing to believe in. And I have them crying by the end of the session because I'm not coming from a place of trying to prove anything. I'm just here to say, look, I believe, I believe in you. Like, I believe in the greatness of you. And maybe you don't, but I do because I've seen the whole picture of how beautiful you are. And I think people can get with that. I think people can get with someone seeing them and loving on them like that. Well, that's, that's a, how do you get to that place? It's like, I think that, you know, I, I find that most of the best coaches and facilitators that I know of embrace that in some way, shape or form. I like when they encounter someone, they are able to experience and see them as who they want to be for themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. I like, they see that and hold that space Mm -hmm. and it allows people to show up in that space. Mm Mm-hmm. How do you how do you do that for people? Because you talked about seeing the whole picture of their beauty and who they are. How do you could you say more about that? About how you get to that place? Because I think it's it's a really empowering frame to bring into relation with people. 
Yeah. So I think that one of the things too is allegory and remembering that these things are coming through in pop culture. And I'm here to answer the question of why these things are so powerful. Like my book opens with um, that for the theory that Forrest Gump is the soul, right? Now, everyone loves Forrest Gump, like old people, young people, middle-aged people, like for some reason, everybody freaking loves that movie, you know? So it's like, why do you love that movie? Um, I believe you love it because you love your soul. You miss your soul. You want your soul so badly. And here's your soul. It's fucking Forrest Gump. Like, it is completely a dreamer. It's, it's got this foot thing, right? Like, so it can't run. But once something goes wrong and there's like a pressure applied right because he's about to get beat up by those boys like he finds out that not only is he not handicapped but he can run like no one's ever run before so then he runs across the entire world or whatever (laughs) and he becomes this ping pong champion and he saves lives of people in the war he even saves the life of the lieutenant who didn't even want to live and like proves to him and then he becomes like some entrepreneurial like you know investor in apple and everything he touches turns to gold right and that's our soul like that you know so just showing people like answering the question for them of like why do you think you love this stuff you know why do you love this particular kind of music or why do you love this particular kind of story you love it because you may not know this but you miss this part of yourself really bad you really do i'm so i'm i'm loving the forrest gump anecdote <laughs> when did you when did that connect for you well i was just doing this study of this work with the fourth way work that i teach and you know, looking over all the fairy tales and how the soul makes an appearance in all the fairy tales because they had to hide this wisdom inside of fairy tales back in the day. Why? Because they, people would get killed for being spiritual seekers. Mm. So you had to be like, okay, we'll just create a deck of cards. We'll call it a game. But really all the cards will represent certain meanings of this like secret, te- you know, secret text. And so like I teach that in some of my workshops, like the secret meaning of playing cards because they weren't created as a game. They were just undercover, like also a game so that people, so that wise teachers would gather at night and be like, oh, we're just playing cards. You know, you don't, you don't have to kill us here. You know what I mean? And the same thing with fairy tales. Why are they so dark and weird, right? Because they weren't created for the purpose of um, children's stories. They were created to help implant the memory of what the soul is for, for, for us to continue to remember. And that's why you have, you know, sleeping beauty. Right. And so like the Wicked Witch is like, is that the one where she's like, who's the fairest one? Yeah. Of them all? It's, it's Snow, Snow White. White. Snow White. She goes, who is the fairest of them all? The, the Wicked Witch, which is basically our body and mind. And our body and mind is like, who's the fairest of them all? And the universe is like, Snow White is. And we're like, no, I am. Ah, I'm so amazing. And and so we go and we try to kill Snow White. We bring her this poisonous apple. And or the body and mind tries to bring the soul, this poisonous apple. But what they find out in that particular parable is you can't kill the soul. You can only put it to sleep. You can't kill it. And so she goes to sleep. And who's the fairest one of them all? Of course, the fucking body and mind, because now Snow White is asleep. But no, she can be awoken by the kiss of love. And it's that's us. We can also be awoken, but the kiss of love can look like a few things. It can look like falling in love, which for anyone listening to this, if you've fallen in love, you know that you lose every falsehood for those three weeks, Mm. right? And then it could happen by being in a car wreck. 
or being um, diagnosed with terminal cancer. It could happen from one of your parents dying or someone that you truly love dying next to you of a terminal condition. But when we get those shocks, that's a kiss of love. And it's like it fucking, it bursts through all the facades. And then we are like, oh my God, like, there's something going on here. There's, There's something underneath all of this. So what are the experiences that most often, so we talked a lot about struggle and challenge. What is the role of those more challenging experiences of life for connecting people with this aspect of themselves, uh, with the soul? And how can they keep that in mind when they are enduring? Like what is the practical application of that or emergence of the soul Mm -hmm. in those specific periods? Yeah. You know, for me, and I can I can tell a story. Maybe that will reflect, kind of like illustrate what to do. You're but, the best storyteller I know. So yes. Oh my god. I, I accept. <laughs> thank you. Uh, my uh, my father died when I was uh, 28, and I was standing in my apartment then in deep Brooklyn, and you know I was washing dishes, and I remember just being so upset. Like I'd never been so sad in my life. Definitely never. And I had already lost my daughter and I'd never been so sad. Losing my father was the absolute epic, most heartache I've ever experienced. And there I was and I got so mad and I threw the cup down into the sink and I said, I never want to feel this way again. And I just like shook. I still remember like my body was like the rage inside of me. Like I was like, pissed you know I just couldn't believe the kind of shit they were doling out you know they were like now we're gonna kill your dad which FYI for anyone who's listening to this has probably either already been through that or is on their way to being through that if they don't have the even more bigger tragedy of dying before their freaking father dies Mm -hmm. so it's like here I am being all bitchy about something that everyone's getting doled out acting like I'm so special And I throw this cup down and I'm like, I never want to feel this way again. And I got a dose in that moment. I just, I speak to whatever that is directly. And it said to me, I don't know why, but it sounded like a black woman. And it was like, oh, yes, you do, child. Yes, you do. And I was like, in that moment, gifted a vision of my future, of meeting the man of my dreams. I was single then, of having children together, of losing him whether it be to my own death or to his. And it was like, for that moment, I was shown that what I was gifted by having a father like mine wasn't this pain, this excruciating pain of losing him, but was this ability to love him that much, that it hurt that much. And when I said, I never want to feel this way again, what was opened up in me was, no, not only do you want to feel this way again, but that this is what life is about. It's about allowing yourself to feel everything. Because if you do, then you'll be able to actually live. Yeah, you'll lose it all, but at least you will have had it. And why do people not allow themselves to feel everything? I think it's because it's painful and that comes back to the point of this conversation. It's excruciatingly painful to feel all things, most especially pain. But I think what's underneath that is that if you could let yourself feel your pain, what you would then let yourself feel, what's right underneath pain is your true desire in life. Your true desire in life isn't accessible to you unless you can feel pain. So you're either feeling it because you can't pursue it 
you're either feeling it because you think it'll never happen to you or for you. I'm just not, it's not going to work out for me. And you're pretending like it's not happening. You're turning on Netflix, you're eating donuts, you're having sex with prostitutes or what, you know, you're watching porn, whatever it is you like to do, but you know, you're lying. And it's like, if you let yourself just feel how much pain there is in that distance between who you are now and who you're actually aiming to become, because we're all expanding, that's painful. And you'd have to then to do that, to get to where you're going, you'd have to also get with how painful it's been not having it up until now. And also misunderstanding all the hard knocks that you've been given up until this point. And being like, hmm, what if every fucked up thing that ever happened to me was actually pushing me along to become the greatest version of myself? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting opportunity for listeners to think back and I'd be curious to hear how you do this for clients, especially we had a, an experience in one of my, my men's events recently where we had a guy who, who talked about a, a physical ailment that had always brought him such insecurity mm. and struggle. Um, and it's like physically visible. And so he talks about how the insecurity, the bullying, like different things that this brought up, up in his life. And then he went on to like we in our session, we, we started to talk about how it had molded him. And it's so interesting if we just take a moment to think back to like whether it's your father passing or whether it's, you know, for me, something like growing up with a lazy eye in middle school or high school. And then when you think about like, how did that mold you into who you are? And you just talked about that reframe again of being so sad versus having the ability to love him. And like, I think about even with my with my lazy eye growing up about like the first time that I talked about this to Lauren Zander, she said, who's both of our coach, <laughs> she said, um, what a gift. And I was like, what do you mean? And she was like, well, if you didn't have this thing, you just would have been some like handsome, cool kid. Mm. And it's like, now you like could empathize with the pain of other people. You were drawn to that. And it like turned you into this empathetic, caring human being. And I couldn't, I couldn't argue with it. I could at least see it that way. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting. So it's like, how do you, when you're working with people, how do you get them to reframe the pain that they're experiencing into that? I mean, even if it's retrospectively, right. Of like, whether it's through a breakup or whether it's through the loss of someone, how do you help people to reframe the pain that they've experienced in that way? I think it's because I see it differently, you know? So by being in my presence, I show them how I see it. And mm. I share, like, similarly how you're saying Lauren showed you that. I just share with them very honestly the way I see it. And I don't see things the way other people see them. I have a lot of flaws. I like pasta. I'm allergic to wheat. That happens. You know <laughs> what I mean? I used to do heroin, like, every single day. I dated all the wrong people. You know, I, I'm super competitive and jealous. And, you know, I have a huge vanity thing. Like, there's photos of me everywhere or whatever but <laughs> but something that I don't have a flaw in is perceiving the world in a completely unique way and a way that is completely delicious like the way that I see shit is so fun and extraordinarily unique and I've always known that about myself but actually it took me getting with all my flaws to be able to truly sit in how amazing I am and today when I talk about how flawed I am it feels exactly the same as 
as it feels to talk about how amazing I am. Whereas before, I felt cringeworthy if I told mm. you I was amazing. And then I felt really ashamed if I told you I was flawed and I shared about those flaws. So the cringeworthy was taken and the awkwardness was taken. And now all things are the same. They're all the same. That's so, that's so beautiful. And I, and I feel it too. And it comes across as you tell stories and as you articulate it of like how I've, like even how I opened up the episode, but of when you say these things and they don't have a weight that's just coming from a place. But I think that what you just said makes so much sense to me that like you actually, when you talk about flaws or perceived flaws, it's coming from this, this place of reverence of like, it's just part of all of it. Mm -hmm. The same place of what I like about myself. Uh, what a powerful reframe. I really love that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I really, really dig that. Um, so it's interesting. So what would you have people do? Like if someone's listening to this right now, right? Yeah. How would you invite them to take a look in at their own perceived flaws as like a little exercise? Like if they're mm. listening to this, like what would you do to have them actually, like if they're going to close this episode on a reframe, mm. right? Mm. What would you do? One thing that um, a coach once taught me many, many, many years ago, he was a magical person who I basically created out of thin air. I was broke as fuck when I met him and he was like this fairy god man who came into my life, taught me how to make money, amazing. Um, and he used to say to me, he's like, you did a good job creating me. I was like, I love you, <laughs> I love you and your tube socks. Anyway, the point is, is that this guy said to me, he said uh, this beautiful sentence. Um, I am this is a mantra that he taught me to say. I am present to that idea, but I recognize it isn't mine. That's the whole mantra. I'm present to that idea, but I recognize it isn't mine. Now, the idea is this. It's like if you have an idea that um, you're li like I used to have this idea when I was a kid. I'm a an amazing singer. I've sang since I was born. It's truly remarkable. Thank you so yeah. much. And I wanted as a kid to go on star search. Um, and I didn't have a mom. I barely had a dad. He was like this awakened shaman who was like busy being a f single parent. We were broke as fuck. My brother was some crazy depressed metalhead. Like I didn't, we didn't have like some like nuclear family where like mom was like, I'll take you to the auditions. Like there was nobody, there was nothing. I could barely get someone to like, you know, walk me home from school type of thing. Like we didn't even have food in the fridge. Like, and I was, so my expectations were a little bit out there. Right. But, but I beat myself up for the rest of my life for not being the kind of person who at eight would have boarded the train, the New York city subway people by herself and gotten on her way to star search herself. I beat myself up till I was like 30 years old with that one just beat myself up with it just was like you fucking loser you couldn't get yourself to star search oh you fucking what are you some kind were you a child many children have done crazier things you're a loser and i made that mean that if i couldn't make it onto star search as a kid that that obviously means i'm not going to make it as a famous singer as an adult like i don't know how those things were connected at all but in my mind they were like right there it was like if you didn't do it then at eight clearly aren't going to do it now at 30 you know and um, and I used to always be mad at people who'd made it young or like, you know, mm. famous act like child actresses or something. I was like, oh, because they had parents who gave a shit, you know, like and I would really just was filled with all this resentment. And so one day when, you know, thinking about it, like I'm present to the idea that because I didn't make it on Star Search as an eight year old, I'm not going to make it as a 30 year old. But I recognize that that idea is not mine. 
Like it's been implanted. It's like a foreign parasite that's been implanted into my body. And so I started to say that over and over about every idea that I felt was like made me uncomfortable. And then what that led to was me being like divorced from these thoughts in that they, they no longer felt like mine. They were like diseases that had been given to me or parasites that were living in me. And I was like excising them one by one. Um, and I'm present to that idea, I recognize it isn't mine, led me to ask, well, what is my idea then? What, are, what is my idea about what, it, idea about what it means to make it as a singer in this world? Oh, my idea is I'd actually like to raise $20,000 and make a record. My idea is that actually I could put my songs on Spotify and then last week sell them to a Showtime show. Oh, my idea is that actually I'm going to create a meditation experience and score it for thousands of people you know, in huge events across the globe. My idea is that, you know, my music is actually really important and nothing that happened when I was eight years old matters a fuck. But my ideas weren't available to me because I was so busy having this one idea over and over and over. So if you're listening to this, you know there's about five ideas that you have. They're pretty fucking boring. You have five of them approximately. And they basically just go over and over and over in your mind. And every time you have them, they make you feel small. They make you feel weak. They make you feel like you should just give up and call in, call it quits. And if you don't realize that those ideas are not yours, that you pick them up somewhere, maybe you pick them up from a parent or a relative or a teacher or a movie or, you know, a guidance counselor, someone gave you the idea that you can't do it, that you're going to fail. And that that's a bad thing too, by the way, because there's nothing wrong with failing. Um, it's, it's just par for the course if you're going to make it right. Um, and you should say, I'm present to that idea, but I recognize it isn't mine. And over and over and over, um, it will be removed from you. Okay. So I want to say two things and then I want to have you ask or answer the question that it's been on my mind kind of this entire conversation. So you just said, remove those ideas that are not you. Yeah. Right. Yours. And so as we talk about what does that mean to you? Like who is the I of Biet at this point? It's like you have such a unique perspective of how you interact and view the world, right? Mm -hmm. And so within that perspective, within that scope, who are you and what makes that up? Who am I? Yeah. Mm, I mean, that's a big question. <laughs> I didn't know if you had like a soundbite for that or if it's still evolving. I'm a lot of really good, good things. Um, but I, I don't know, maybe a soundbite. I would just say that I am someone who is open to the possibility of perceiving the, you know, the divine's will for me. And mm. I'm curious to see what the universe has written as my like personality, the, the, the sex and the love affair of my personality self, which is for anyone who's listening, a short and cute brunette with short bangs, you know, um, that personality self, this little, you know, Jewish New Yorker mixed with this soul, right? Um, there's this beautiful statue at the Met and the statue is, it's a Pharaoh. Is that what you would call yeah, those? Yeah, sure. And, and he has a falcon behind him, like a giant falcon. But he, the falcon is behind him, so he couldn't possibly see it. Like, it's just him standing there. And I think of myself as that falcon. I mean, uh, I think of myself as that Pharaoh. The difference between me, everyone's a Pharaoh. Everyone's a person on the planet, which is what the Pharaoh represents. But 
not everyone recognizes that there's a whole falcon behind them. You know, and it's like, oh, this is another biblical thing, but there's a, something in the Bible where uh, Jesus says, devil, get behind me, right? <laughs> and it's kind of like what he needs, because the devil's a very powerful force, right? But it's all about the positioning of the devil. If you can get it fucking behind you, it is powerful, and it'll push your soul along in the right, in the right way. It's like what, um, I think there's a book by Elizabeth Gilbert. Uh, what was it called? Not Big Magic. Yeah, Big Magic. And she says, I fucking finally realized that fear was coming with me for this journey. So I said, all right, I guess you're coming because you don't seem to be getting off my back, but you have to ride in the back of the car. Like you cannot be in the front seat with me anymore. You have to be in the back seat. And I'm not listening to you anymore. I'm just going, but you can come. And that's kind of what Jesus means when he says, devil, get behind me. Because it's like, you're fucking coming. I want, I want the engine of the devil along for this ride. But I'm not letting him run where it's going. Totally. Yeah. I love that when you talked about just reconnecting with the ideas that are yours. And like it made me think about even, I think earlier today I was reading one of the previous guests on the show, Daniel Schmachtenberger. He had these questions to uncover your dharma mm-hmm. or just like your right path. And one of the questions that, and you were talking about that of like all the, the ideas you have in your head that tell you why you can't do it while you fail and the idea that failing is bad in some way. (laughs) But one of the, one of the questions I think is so powerful when you're trying to implant your own idea into your head is just the frame of what would you be doing if you knew you couldn't fail? Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. I love that one. It's a good one. Right. Oh yeah. And so be at, you have offered some perspective shifting ideas today. Is there anything else that you would want people to know as they start to open up to this kind of exploration of the self? I mean, I think, you know, you already know you can't do it alone, right? It takes a village. It takes a community. So I think becoming docile to being guided you know, being willing to being open to new ideas, you know, reading books that push you out of your comfort zone, doing the things inside those books, maybe taking courses, you know, asking people out to coffee who frighten you because they're so awesome, you know, doing things that you're afraid of. And, um, and, and for me asking in meditation, you know, I would just say, like, if you're not if you're not willing to listen to that still small voice inside yourself, like you're just not going to happen. Like you don't know, like you just don't know what's best for you. And Mm. you may have a very like totally good life. If you don't do any of the things that are like featured in my book or featured in, by the way, like there's only one book ever been written. So if you happen to love mine, great. You can also read like the Tao Te Ching. It'll do the same thing. (laughs) So, you know, so if you want it to come with cursing and like regale you with stories of shopping at Barney's, do it with my book. (laughs) But if you want to like, you know, get the same idea from some old Chinese guy um, or many Chinese people who may have written that book together, um, go, go that direction. But the point is that there's one fucking idea going on. And that idea is that you don't know what the fuck you're doing. There's something very beautiful happening that you're missing. And that if you just shut the fuck up, you might be able to hear how beautiful it is. And you might write like Beethoven's ninth, because that's how amazing one is when they shut the fuck up. Hmm. That guy was deaf when he wrote that. Yeah. 
it's interesting. There's uh, one of uh, one of my friends talked to me recently about the difference between actualization and realization. Yeah. Like the idea of actualization being the manifestation of one's abilities, yep. which can be you know a, a worthwhile pursuit in and of itself, versus realization, which is the unearthing of a more fundamental truth. And so it's like, hmm. but if you, I think what we've been talking about today is is this idea of like realization as a path to, you know, potentially actualization of like when we uncover new truths, like things that resonate to us, it opens up new possibilities for how we live our lives, who we can be. And I think you're masterful at doing this. And I'm very, very grateful for you for being here, for sharing your stories, your flaws, your beautiful, positive attributes and every aspect of you. And, uh, so for people who want to dig in deeper, the book is called don't just sit there. It's amazing. So we're going to link everything in the show notes, but what do you have coming up uh, that you want to tell people about or where can people connect with you online? The best way is at guided by Biet, which is my Instagram. I also have a website. It's Biet Um, there's videos on there and like links to meditations. And, uh, I, I'm like kind of mentally a care bear. So like my events might not even be listed on there. Um, but <laughs> the Instagram is a good place to go for that stuff. So, so definitely reach me there if you're looking for if you have a if you have a chance, follow her on Instagram and she posts her events there and they are truly remarkable and a great kind of like spearhead to get you into this world. But we'll link the book, everything else. Biet, you're awesome. Thank you for you. joining us today. Thank and love you. you too. Signing off.